Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 311, Team Edward. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. This week, Z and I dug into some of the crazy stories that came out of this period. We also talked about some sociological studies that might help explain the contradictions in Edgar's reign, and we also answered your questions about how the show gets made. And you can get instant access to that episode and all the other members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Adam, Constantine, and Lissa for signing up already. King Edgar the Peaceable was buried at Glastonbury in 975. But weirdly, that's not the end of his story. William of Malmesbury tells us that nearly a century later, in 1053, the abbot Aylward reopened the king's tomb. Now, Malmesbury doesn't tell us why the monk decided to reopen the grave. I suppose we can just assume that Aylward was going through a goth phase. But what we're told is that when the abbot opened the tomb, he found Edgar lying in it perfectly preserved, as if he was merely sleeping. Faced with an apparent miracle, or what we would recognize today as an obvious vampire, Aylward decided to press his luck even farther, and he cut into the flesh of the long-dead king. As the knife sunk into Edgar's body, blood gushed forth in torrents. That's the actual description, by the way. Gushing out in torrents. And this scene out of The Shining freaked out the people who had been gathered around the tomb. Yeah, apparently since this was long before Netflix, there were bored people just standing around watching Aylward's tomb raiding and Dark Age autopsies. And this scene, a still bleeding body disturbed in its tomb nearly a hundred years after its burial, is treated as one of Edgar's miracles. Not long after, Abbot Aylward broke his neck. That too was counted as a miracle by Edgar because miracles and curses apparently were a lot more closely related back in those days. But with this final act of suspicious, potentially magical violence, the story of Edgar comes to an end. Back in 975 though, back before Edgar was vampirically terrifying the locals and magically cracking skulls, there was a bit of a problem. Edgar was dead, or at least dead-ish apparently, but he left behind multiple heirs to the throne, and there was no clear frontrunner. And that is the stuff that civil wars are made of. And for some crazy reason, the House of Wessex just kept on doing that over and over again. For example, King Edward the Elder had several heirs, all from different mothers. And his eldest son, Athelstan, was rumored to be a bastard. As a result of that, the nobility formed battle lines in support of their favorite candidate. And this wasn't a matter of putting up lawn signs and coming up with campaign slogans. This was a knockdown, drag-out fight. Quite literally, swords definitely came out, and Athelstan was nearly blinded by a gang of nobles who opposed his candidacy. And as for the other claimant to the throne, Athelstan's half-brother, Ilfweird, well, he died in Mercia, in Athelstan's territory, under mysterious circumstances. That is not exactly a smooth transfer of power. Now, there wasn't a fight when Athelstan died. Instead, power just went to his younger half-brother, Edmund. But the fact that Edmund was murdered under really strange circumstances at his own feast doesn't exactly fill one with confidence. 
And because Edmund's own children were so young, the throne then went to his brother, Edred. But Edred eventually died due to some sort of stomach issue, potentially Crohn's, which meant that there were once again two brothers in line for the throne, Edwig the Fair and Edgar. And this succession was supposed to be easy. They were both from the same mother. They were both from a legitimate marriage. They were both the sons of the king. So you'd assume in that circumstance that all that mattered was who was oldest. And true to form, as Edwig was at the ripe old age of 14, the crown did go to him. But just because there wasn't a question of legitimacy, that didn't mean that things were placid. This was the House of Wessex. And what was at stake here was one of the most powerful kingdoms in the West. So even though Edgar was the younger brother, he was still from the right family. And he still had a claim. So the specter of factionalism appeared in England again, pitting brother against brother. And soon after taking the throne, Edwig had to give half of his kingdom to his baby brother Edgar, just in order to avoid a civil war. But that doesn't seem to have resolved the issue. Because four years later, when Edwig was about 18, he also died under mysterious circumstances. And Edgar became the sole king of England. And if you think that this history and Edgar's personal experience with conflict against his own brother would have led him to be more careful in establishing a clear line of succession, you would be wrong. Edgar, like his grandfather Edward the Elder, had a thirst. And as a result, he had several children that were from several different mothers. And the trouble there was that he up and died at the age of 31 or 32 without any clear indication of which child should succeed him on the throne. You see, ultimately, the problem that we're facing here is that the House of Wessex was really just good at two things. Fighting Danes and creating succession crises. And there weren't any Danish armies around. So here we go again. And part of the problem is that there actually wasn't yet a formal method of succession in England. Primogeniture was an option, but it wasn't the option. For ages, the king had just been chosen by the Watanagamont, but then that selection of who the Watanagamont could choose from got limited to certain families. And over the generations, eligibility began to be gradually restricted to only certain members of certain families. Until finally, it was just certain members of one family. By the end of the 9th century, the rules were getting quite restrictive, but also quite clear. The king would be selected from the close male relatives who were on the royal line. Now, functionally, this meant that boys and men who'd be able to trace their lineage back to a common royal grandfather would be eligible. And those who could trace their line back in this way were known as athlings. And this meant that any time a king died, there would be a number of potential claimants to the throne often quite a few. And with so many potential claimants, so many athlings, you'd need a way to determine who had the strongest and therefore the most stable claim. So if you're an athling aspiring to an open throne, you would of course need to ensure that you were popular with other nobles. That's kind of a given. But more important than the random nobles were the other athlings. If you wanted a strong claim, you'd want some athlings in your corner. Think about this sort of like endorsements from former rivals during a political primary, right? But it wouldn't stop there. 
You'd also want to gain the support of the mothers of the athelings, and if you can manage it, the support of the former king's wife. See, the support of highborn mothers of athelings and wives of kings actually had a lot of influence in this arena specifically. You'd also want the church on your side if you can manage it. But beyond the popularity contests, you'd also need to establish that you were a child of a legitimate marriage. As you might remember from episodes about King Offa, the church, quite likely at his request, dictated that only children of legitimate marriages could inherit. Offa's incentive for this rule was obvious. His predecessor, Athelbald, had left behind a small army of illegitimate children, which, without this rule, could all challenge his son's claim to the throne. So this rule was an elegant solution to that problem. But it also had its own issues. Because what constitutes a legitimate marriage during this time wasn't necessarily obvious. People were still working it out. But if your parents didn't have one, that had the possibility of disqualifying your claim. Even if everyone liked you. So it was a pretty big hurdle. And then there was the biggest factor of all. While alive, the king had the right of designating his heir. If you were an atheling, you would want his approval. Now, to be clear, being tapped as the king's heir wasn't a 100% guarantee. But it was a huge factor in how they would decide who would ultimately succeed to the throne. So you really would want it if you could get it. And with so many factors in play with so many potential claimants, it's not surprising that disputed successions and conflicts between family members over the crown have become a perennial issue in England. And hopefully, it also helps explain why there are conflicts over who should inherit, even when there's a situation that looks like it's pretty clear to us today. For example, even though Edwig and Edgar were both from a legitimate marriage, and Edwig was the eldest brother, given the number of factors that are involved in selecting a king, you can kind of see why there is a reasonable argument for why Edgar should rule instead. And apparently, that argument was such a good one that he ended up getting half the kingdom. And if we take Osborne of Canterbury's word for it, people also felt so strongly about Edgar that some Mercian nobles ambushed Elf Gifu. She was the woman who supported Edwig and who later writers claimed had a three-way with him. Well, according to the story, some Mercians who were allied with Edgar ambushed Elf Gifu and literally cut her hamstrings. We're told that she died of her wounds sometime later. But the point here is that this whole system all but guaranteed that brother would be pit against brother, and that the conflict could be potentially violent, even when there were very clear lines of succession. And Edgar didn't leave a clear line of succession. Even though his own father, Edmund, had died suddenly, it doesn't look like Edgar had been proactive in making arrangements for succession in the event of his own demise. If there is a document or statement of who he preferred as his heir, it's not been discovered. Now granted, his death appears to have been unexpected, and it came on suddenly, which we can surmise because very few of his retainers were at court when he died. But still, by not planning for this possibility... It meant that he left a kingdom in crisis, with no clear indication of who the crown should go to. Now there were, of course, the extended family members who held the title of Atheling who might want to make a play for the crown, as they might in any succession. But honestly, that situation was small potatoes compared to the real problem. Edgar left behind sons. And sons had a really strong claim to the throne, but we don't know which son was the preferred heir. He hinted at it, kind of, sort of. 
but at least from the records that we have, he never actually said it affirmatively. And he needed to say it. And that deficit might be why the question of legitimacy becomes such an overwhelming theme in this story. Because while popularity with the nobility and the support of athlings and their mothers could go a long way, in the absence of a clear designation by the king, legitimacy was the next best thing. Because legitimacy wasn't just a preference. It was a rule. It was a requirement set down by God through his representatives on earth. And that left very little wiggle room. Which brings us to the matter of King Edgar's children. Now, the records are quite clear that Edmund and Athelred were the children of Queen Aelfrith. She was the superfine hottie from Devon. And the thing about Queen Aelfrith was that she wasn't just the king's legitimate wife. She was also a crowned queen. And that's a really big deal. But if you think her kids are a lock, that isn't necessarily the case. Because the problem was that while her children were male and the product of a legitimate marriage, they weren't the eldest of Edgar's children. They were the youngest. They were quite young. And seniority was a factor in these succession matters, especially when you have heirs that are so young. So what about the other kids, the older siblings? Well, they had a big sister, St. Edith, and modern historians agree that St. Edith was the child of nun Wolfrith, which, had she been born male, may have presented a legitimacy issue, considering the fact that it's pretty hard to find a way to argue that a year in Kemsing with a nun qualifies as a legitimate marriage. But, as she was a girl, that problem was dodged, and she was just carted off to Wilton with her mother, and the would-be princess never posed any problem for succession. But, she had an older brother. They all did. Prince Edward. And Prince Edward was another matter entirely. He was King Edgar's firstborn son. Now the Chronicle says that he wasn't yet a man when his father died, which meant that he would have been no more than 12 or 13 years old. And for ruling, that's not exactly ideal. But he was the eldest of Edgar's sons, and that gave him a very strong claim to the throne. Unless, of course, they could establish that he wasn't legitimate. And that brings us to the issue of who Edward's mum was. Now, modern historians usually claim that he was the child of a woman named Athelflaed the White. But that's actually a bit controversial, because authors in the 10th and 11th centuries don't seem to agree on who Edward's mother was. Instead, they had all kinds of theories. The first and oldest of the theories of Edward's legitimacy comes from a man named Osborne of Canterbury. And he wrote The Life of St. Dunstan. Well, actually, he wrote one of the lives of St. Dunstan. Lives of saints were a bit like fanfic. Everyone was in there trying their hand in it. And in Osborne's life of St. Dunstan, he claimed that Prince Edward was actually the child of Edgar and a nun. Now, if this is true, it means two things. First, it means that Edward was illegitimate. And second, it means that Wolfthrift wasn't Edgar's first nun. And apparently he developed a bit of a habit. But Osborne wasn't the final word on the matter. His contemporary, Edmer, was also writing a life of St. Dunstan. And this life of St. Dunstan was actually a completely different life of St. Dunstan than the one we talked about in previous episodes, the one that was written by B. He was the one who told us about Edwig's three-way. Like I said, there are a lot of lives. But Edmer decided to write one of his own. And in doing so, he consulted Nicholas of Worcester. 
And Nicholas of Worcester was actually a man after my own heart. He loved research. We're told that he dug into the chronicles, into stories that were circulating around the matter. He also consulted unnamed and apparently lost documents from learned authors, all that were believed to be true. And from his research, he concluded that Edward's mother was Athelflaed the White, who he claimed was the daughter of an East Anglian elderman named Ordmar. And although Athelflaed the White was never crowned queen, we're assured that she was Edgar's lawfully married wife during the time when Edgar was ruling over Mercia. And if true, that's great news for Prince Edward. But there is a problem with it. You see, we know who the Alderman of East Anglia was. And it wasn't Ordmar. It was Athelstan Halfking. Now, some historians suggest that when Nicholas and Edmer use the term Elderman, they're actually using it as shorthand for powerful man in East Anglia. So Ordmar may have just been a particularly rich or influential thane, but this mismatch in titles does raise some questions as to the validity of this account. And I can't help but wonder if Ordmar was trying to smooth over some of the rougher edges to Edgar's reign. After all, he's the same author who actively downplays Edgar's nun theft. He acknowledges it, but he takes the perspective that actually the woman in question was a layperson and she just put on a nun's veil in an attempt to get away from the king. But the king saw through it, and he took her anyway. That was their positive spin on the whole situation. So yeah, there's evidence that Edmer was engaged in some kind of PR-style crisis management. And with that in mind, we should probably take another look at what Edmer and Nicholas were asking us to accept. These men want us to believe that Edward was the child of Athelflaed the White who they say is a noble daughter of an elderman who didn't exist, and who had a legitimate marriage to the king that wasn't recorded anywhere. I mean, maybe it's just me, but it sure seems like Edmer and Nicholas were trying to come up with a less scandalous story for Prince Edward's parentage, and were apparently just hoping that no one would check the details. But checking the details is kind of what we do here, and the details weren't looking too good for Edward. We also have a third account of Edgar's rule, it comes from Goscalin of Sambertin. And Goscalin, who was also a fan of Edgar, offers a more palatable version of the king's exploits with nuns. He tells us that the women that Edgar consorted with, sometimes under clear coercion, only became nuns after they had sex with him. Which I think we're supposed to think is better? Somehow? I don't know. And then, of course, we have the account by William of Malmesbury, which you're already quite familiar with by now. That's where we get the story of Wolfthrith, the peasant girl who is masquerading as a noble daughter, Edgar murdering Elfthrith's first husband. All that stuff comes from Malmesbury. And as you might have noticed, all these hagiographers and scribes have conflicting accounts. They can't really agree on any of the details. But despite these conflicts, they do provide a fairly consistent story at the center what we're learning is that King Edgar's reign was full of scandal, he had children from multiple mothers, and given his unconventional appetite, there were questions regarding the legitimacy of Edward. And there was only one account claiming he was legitimate, and it just so happened to be the same account that included some nun-sex apologia. That's bad news if you're Prince Edward. And considering that these questions and gossip continued to circulate in England even after Edgar was long dead, you have to assume that the rumor mill was working overtime in the days and weeks following Edgar's death. And the truth is, we have more than rumor to work with here. We also have entries in the Chronicle and charters. 
and actually some other supporting documents, and very few of them look good for Edward. It's relatively uncontested that shortly after Edward was born, or possibly while Edward was still an infant, or maybe even still in the womb, King Edgar decided to run off with nun Wolfrith, and then had a child with her. That was baby Edith. So right out of the gate, Edward was not being treated as a child of a legitimized union, let alone as the heir to the throne. And then, when Edward was about two years old, in 964, his father, King Edgar, married Elfrith, who, unlike Edward's alleged mother, was the daughter of a real elderman, one we can identify and confirm in the records. And her marriage to King Edgar was also recorded. Shortly thereafter, Edgar and Elfrith had a son. They named him Edmund. And by 966, when he was probably no older than 18 months old, baby Edmund was witnessing charters. Now, it's doubtful that a baby could really give accurate testimony regarding land grants, so this probably wasn't to provide legal surety over the grant. Rather, it was to establish young Edmund's legitimacy in the court. And if there was any question as to the source of that legitimacy and where Edmund was positioned in the royal dynasty, there was another charter from that same year. This one involved Newminster. In it, many of the leading nobles of the South appeared, including both sons of the king, young Edmund, and his older half-brother, Edward. But this document is full of subtext. Edmund, even though he's the younger son by King Edgar, appears in the witness list before Edward. Furthermore, Edmund is described as, quote, the king's legitimate son, end quote, while poor Edward is merely, quote, begotten by that same king, end quote. To reinforce this emphasis on legitimacy, Queen Elthrith appears in the charter as the king's lawful wife, which you would assume wouldn't actually need to be said. That is, unless you're trying to establish a distinction between Elthrith and someone else. And then, to really hammer at home, the names are accompanied by little symbols next to them. King Edgar, Queen Elthrith, Prince Edmund, and even the king's mother, Aid Gifu, are all listed with little gold crosses next to their names. And then you have poor Prince Edward. Next to his name is just a little black outline of a cross. Everything about this document screams that Edward is a bastard and is lower ranked than Edmund. It's a document that seems to be the final nail in the coffin of Edward's claim to the throne. But there is a problem with it. That charter was written by our old friend, Bishop Athelwald of Winchester. And Bishop Athelwald of Winchester was a close ally of Queen Elthrith. So this charter might reflect Edgar's intentions regarding his sons, but it also might just be a reflection of Queen Elthrith's intentions of trying to box out her stepson in order to clear a path for her own son. I don't know, but I do know this. Who needs daytime television when you have Anglo-Saxon land grants? Then, about two years later, King Edgar and Queen Elthrith had a second son, Athelred. And by 969, he too begins to appear in documents as an Atheling. A couple years later, a powerful elderman named Alfhea died. And his death is important because in his will, he grants significant gifts to both Edmund and Athelred. And from the context of the documents, it appears that Elfhea was a relative of King Edgar, and he was likely a godparent to Edmund or Athelred, or maybe even both. 
but there is someone who is missing in this will. Edward. Edward was left out. On that same year, Prince Edmund died of unknown causes. And I wouldn't read too much into his death, honestly. Edmund would have been about six or seven years old, and childhood deaths during this period were pretty common. But that meant that there were now just two living sons of Edgar. There was Edward, who would have been about nine years old, and there was Athelred, who would have been about two. And this is where the line of succession gets really tricky. Because you can actually make a really convincing argument that based on the Newminster Charter, that King Edgar intended that Prince Edmund would be his heir. But now Prince Edmund was dead, and there's not a single scrap of evidence that suggests that that preference was inherited by Edmund's baby brother, Athelred. In fact, John of Worcester and the Passio Sancti Edwardi both claim that King Edgar actually favored Edward, not Athelred. But in fairness, John was writing long after the fact, and the Passio Sancti Edwardi, literally the Passion of St. Edward, clearly had a dog in this fight and wanted to portray Edward as saintly as possible. So we can't take them as a bare reporting of Edgar's actual intentions, especially in light of the absolute lack of any supporting contemporary record. Because I really can't say this enough, we have no contemporary account that clearly states who Edgar intended to succeed him to the throne. And that brings us once again back to July 8th of 975 the day when King Edgar died. He left behind two potential heirs, both of whom had strong claims to the throne. Edward was the eldest, being somewhere between 11 and 13 years old. And if you're going to be stuck with a child king, the older child king is probably a good option. But there are also questions circulating regarding his legitimacy. On the flip side, there's Athelred, who obviously had the support of the dowager Queen Elfthrith. But... Athelred was only six or seven years old, which, you know, is not exactly old enough to know how to handle the ship of state. But in the absence of a clear disqualifying factor, and with no apparent designation from the king, the question of who the nobles supported now became incredibly important. It was increasingly looking like this succession would go down like a high school election for class president. And Bert Firth of Ramsey, who wrote The Life of St. Oswald, that was the same document that relates to us, the coronation ceremony. Well, he speaks to the confusion and the conflict that surrounded this succession. And Bertfirth was writing only decades after this succession. So he's actually one of our best sources, if not the best source, for what was actually going on on the ground. And what he tells us is that the most powerful nobles in the land preferred Edward. But he adds that not all the nobles wanted Edward. In particular, there was a faction of the nobility who very much wanted Athelred to inherit the throne. But interestingly, Bertfirth doesn't say that this was due to some sort of realpolitik being played by Athelred's mother, Ilthrith, or some kind of political or strategic preference about land or power, or even issues about legitimacy. Instead, apparently the issue was Edward's temper. We're told that Edward, quote, inspired in all not only fear, but even terror, for he attacked them not only with words, but truly with dire blows, end quote. And we're told that his favorite targets were those of his inner circle, his own men. And something that really should add weight to Bertfirth's account is the fact that his religious house, Ramsey, was a community that supported Edward. 
or at least the leadership of Ramsey, supported Edward. So to have someone from that community write about how there were concerns about Edward, and that there was actually a faction of nobles who wanted Athelred, and it was all due to Edward's explosive anger, well, that makes me think he was telling the truth. I'm also just not surprised that young Edward had a temper. Not only was he the child of a man known for his violent outbursts, which would give you an idea of what kind of environment Edward was raised in, but there's also the fact that at least while his half-brother Edmund was alive, it was pretty clear that he was getting passed over, which for a nine-year-old child could easily have been experienced as a very painful rejection from his own parent. Psychologically, that doesn't look like a healthy environment for any young child. And sure enough, Edward does not appear to have been psychologically healthy. But while you can understand where it comes from, an insecure leader with daddy issues who's constantly attacking everyone and everything isn't exactly the best thing for a nation, as I think we've all discovered. So these concerns regarding Edward's temperament carry a lot of weight for me. I think it's entirely believable that the people close to him who were taking the full force of his fury would have been the same people who'd have the biggest worries about handing him unlimited power. But because I like to give a full accounting of the facts, I should point out that the Passion of St. Edward claims that Edward was actually, quote, the gentlest of lambs, end quote. But again, that document wasn't being written as a historical record of fact. It was literally making a case for sainthood. You're not going to find statements like, Edward was in desperate need of counseling, or Edward beat a cat to death. That's not going to go in there. So as a result, I think we probably shouldn't take their word for it, considering that all the other sources either are neutral or they talk about Edward as a rage monster. And something to note about Bertfirth's account about the noble's fears of Edward's temper is the fact that he really was writing very soon after these events. He was much closer to them than Edmer or Nicholas of Worcester. In fact, Bertfirth was actually alive at this point, whereas Edmer wouldn't be born for nearly 100 years. And that gap in time is really important because there's a critical element that Bertfirth leaves out when he's talking about the nobility's objections to Prince Edward. Have you spotted it? Bertfirth doesn't have anything to say regarding Edward's parentage. In fact, there's no contemporary record indicating that the nobility took issue with Edward's legitimacy at all. None. There's that single charter written by Athelwald back when Edmund was still alive. But other than that, there really isn't anything that we can rely on that points to problems with legitimacy. And passive-aggressive comments in a single charter, in a weird art decision, isn't necessarily enough to hang your hat on. It's just the later writers who focus on legitimacy. Which raises the question, why were the later writers focused on it when Bertfirth didn't mention it at all? Well, it is possible that Bertfirth intentionally left it out. I mean, the leaders of his house were rather fond of Edward, and perhaps they wouldn't have tolerated questioning his lineage. But there is another factor in play here. Many of the later writers, like Edmer, were writing during the time of King Henry I of England. And you're going to learn a lot more about this later when we get there. But one of the reasons why the writers might have been preoccupied with questions of legitimacy during the reign of King Henry is that Henry I had one legitimate son. And a boatload of bastards. So questions of legitimacy and who could legally inherit the throne were likely on the forefront of just about everyone's mind during Edmer's time. But 
that didn't mean that was the case back in the 10th century. And the fact is that these scribes weren't always concerned with recording accurate details. Sometimes they were just filling in the gaps or commenting on things that happened during their own era. And that leaves me asking, was that the case with Edmer and Nicholas of Worcester? Was that the case with Osborne of Canterbury? I really don't know, but we should at least be aware of the environment that they were writing in. Because the truth is that the contemporary record doesn't reflect any concern over parentage, just concerns over rage. And some of them were so worried that they preferred Athelred, who was described as gentle. So it's starting to look like Wessex was facing off with their own version of Joffrey versus Tommen. And with regard to the noble battle lines that were forming, I think it's notable that while Bertfirth doesn't tell us which nobles wanted Athelred, many people tend to assume that Queen Aelfthrith was leading that faction. And on the one hand, I get it, right? Athelred was her son, and you can totally imagine that she had an interest in his elevation. But I'm really hesitant to automatically assume that she was behind the whole thing. First of all, there's no contemporary textual evidence that she was leading a cabal against Edward. Furthermore, it can't be ignored that historians and scribes are often quite quick to blame a woman, especially a wicked stepmother, for any civic or familial discord. And as we'll discover soon, Ilthrith was actually a common target for later writers who wanted someone to blame. So I'm coming into this a little bit skeptical. And I think it's notable that even after the events of 975, it looks like Edward had actually a pretty good relationship with his stepmother Ilthrith and his half-brother Athelred at least on the surface level that we can see. So if Aelthrith really was involved in this move against Edward, and if she was leading it, she must have kept it pretty well secret. But while we don't have any direct statements as to who was precisely involved and where the battle lines were drawn, by looking at the charters and the supporting documents and the relationships between nobles, we can make some educated guesses as to which noble supported which group. Now, as you might have guessed from his charter, it does appear that Bishop Athelwald supported Prince Athelred. Furthermore, Athelred's uncle from his mother's side, Elderman Ordwolf of Devon, appears to have also been part of that faction. And then you have Elderman Athelhera of Mercia, who was so close to Elfthrith that his brother was actually her godfather. And he was probably also in that camp, as was the powerful noble Elfric Child. Furthermore, it's quite likely that Elderman Oslak of York, who was one of King Edgar's most trusted companions and someone who was actually so close to the king that he was tasked with escorting King Kenneth whenever he came to courtly meetings in England. Well, it looks like he also sided with Athelred. So we've got Mercia, Devon, York, and the powerful Bishop of Winchester. That's quite a faction. And those are just the nobles that were able to spot by reading between the lines of the surviving documents. But were any of them athlings from the royal line? No. And if you remember back to the start of this episode, the question of who had the strongest claim wasn't just, do you have the support of some nobles? What you needed was the support of the right kind of nobles, preferably athlings, meaning nobles from certain preferred branches of the royal family. And the nobles that were supporting Athelred might be powerful, but they weren't from the royal family. Athelweird the Chronicler, on the other hand, was. And if you hear of Athelweird now, he's probably being discussed as a chronicler. He was an extremely important source for this period. But in his time, his big claim to fame was that he was the descendant of King Athelred I of Wessex, King Alfred the Great's brother. Athelweird was an atheling, 
and Athelweird Atheling appears to have supported Edward, which raises the possibility that other extended members of the House of Wessex might have also been supporting Edward's claim, and all of that would have carried a lot of weight for Edward. Something else that would have carried a lot of weight was who the church sided with. And while the life of St. Dunstan completely omits this fiasco, later writers claim that Archbishop Dunstan supported Edward. And apparently, he wasn't alone. John of Worcester claims that Archbishop Oswald also supported Edward. And if that's true, that would mean that both seas of England were on Team Edward. And that would mean that the entire religious apparatus was functionally on his side which would have tipped the balance heavily in Edward's favor. But weighing in like that actually seems to have come with a price. It appears that it cost the church a lot of the power that it gained during the reign of Edgar. Because Burtford tells us that on that same year, Elderman Elf Hera of Mercia, he was one of those supporters of Athelred, went on the march. And he broke up Bishop Oswald's monastic communities. And he forcefully expelled the monks from the Benedictine monasteries in Mercia. And not just Oswald's monasteries. He was hitting a bunch of spots, and he was replacing them with clerks. And by doing this, he not only undercut Edward's supporters, he was also reversing those Benedictine reforms which have been making those monasteries so boring lately. And if you're wondering what Bishop Athelwald thought about this, I am too, actually. I mean, Athelwald was a Benedictine reformer, but he was also on Team Athelred. So how did he feel about Team Athelred going and undoing a bunch of Benedictine reforms? I don't know. People are complicated and contradictory, and many times so are their politics. So just about anything's possible. But Alf Hera's march to strip the Benedictine reformers of their power might have actually continued all throughout the South were it not for Elderman Athelwinna of East Anglia. And Elderman Athelwinna of East Anglia might have been on Team Edward. Maybe. See, the thing is that Elderman Alf Hera and Elderman Athelwinna were old rivals. In fact, their families had a long-standing feud, so it's not actually clear whether Athelwinna was repping for Edward, or whether he took issue with the anti-Benedictine sentiment, or if he just didn't like Elf Hera's face. But whatever it was, Athelwinna of East Anglia had enough, and he mustered his furred, and he marched to meet his rival. But interestingly, even though we have two major eldermen facing off in the field, there doesn't appear to have been any large-scale violent conflict between their forces. Instead, it seems like just Athelwinna's appearance in the field was sufficient to halt what Bertfirth calls the madness before Elfhera was able to reach the powerful monastery at Ramsey. The whole thing is strange, and it certainly looks like there was a significant conflict over the throne, but for some reason, as for actual violence, we don't see all that much evidence of it. We do hear about lands being, quote, withdrawn by force. For example, the lands that King Edgar granted to Abingdon were forcefully taken and were given to Athelred, which very much sounds like Athelred supporters, or perhaps even Athelwald, were punishing that community for siding with Edward. But that's hardly a large-scale battle. Similarly, we're told that Athelings had their lands seized by Athelred supporters, who then placed those lands under Athelred's control. So again, we have more hostile takeovers of land holdings with pretty clear political undertones that seem to imply that Edward had the support of the Athelings and Athelred's supporters were attempting to punish them. But when we think about civil wars, which is functionally what this was, we tend to imagine battles, but that's not what's happening here. 
Instead, it just sounds like there was a lot of posturing and the occasional small warband seizing real estate. And that means that this whole thing feels a lot less like the scenes from Braveheart and more like scenes from Mad Max. You get your gang together, you try and grab some land, and then you do whatever you can to hold on to it when another gang comes and tries to take it. And it just went like that for a while. We don't know how long that standoff continued, but it does appear that Edward had the support of the church and also the support of the Athelings. So I think we can all see where this is going. And that brings us to a charter produced by Athelred in 999, 24 years after these events had passed. And in it, Athelred recalls, quote, to the time of my boyhood, end quote. And he speaks of how, quote, all the leading men of both orders unanimously chose my brother Edward to guide the government of the kingdom, end quote. So yeah, it's exactly what you expected. Edward won the fight and became King Edward. But I think the phrase unanimously chose my brother is misleading. The charter does reflect the fact that there were factions because we're hearing about both orders. But saying that there was a unanimous decision, I just don't know about it. I mean, as we've been discussing, the events suggest that this wasn't unanimous at all. And that lack of unanimity is even expressed in what follows the ascension of Edward. Do you remember Elderman Oslak of York? And it's okay if you don't. I've been throwing Elderman at you constantly this episode. But Elderman Oslak of York was the one who is the trusted companion to King Edgar. And he had sided with Athelred. And on the same year that Edward won his disputed succession, Elderman Oslak gets exiled from the Kingdom of England and never returns. Meanwhile, Edward was also careful to reward those who supported him, which is probably why we see Athelweird the Chronicler, who was a supporter of Edward, being given lands in Cornwall and granted the title of Elderman of the Western Shires. So I'm not sure what you'd call this, but unanimity isn't it. But the king is dead. Long live the king. And I hope his courtiers remember to duck. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, all over the place, really. And you can find links to all those communities in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.